Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Internet of Things with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's future with totally new sources of information that will change the way you run your business. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the Game Changers, you're in the right place. We have a very important, very serious topic today and three wonderful experts who are sharing their time, their expertise, their insights. You don't want to miss this one. And if you can't get to this show or if you know somebody who would really appreciate this information, you can send them the link. So let's get started. The buzz, up close and personal. And I mean that in every possible way. The numbers are staggering. The possibilities are promising. From 1990 to 2003, now let's see, that's a span of just a mere 13 years. The Human Genome Project discovered and documented the complete sequence of 3 billion pairs, I said 3 billion, of DNA molecules. molecules. That's what makes up you and me. That's what makes up who we are. Let's fast forward another 12 years to now, 2015, and a lot more progress has been made. Let's talk about our topic for today, big data analytics and the Internet of Things. Enable us now to analyze these DNA sequences of, guess what, thousands and thousands of cancer tumors. I'll say of every shape every stripe, every variety. The bad news is there are too damn many of them. The good news, I'm getting goosebumps as I say this, the good news is we can analyze them. What is the impact on you and me, your family, your country, our society, the world? Well, the good news. We can apply this information to personalized therapy for individual patients based on their lifestyle and their environment. Now take a deep breath and think about what that means. That means no more one size fits all. That means the opportunity to customize treatments and therapies one off and the implications are huge. Let's talk to three experts who will help us dive into this and figure out what does it really, really mean? Who is it for? Who's going to benefit? Who's first on the list for these amazing developments? And we have a lot more to share with you. First up, I'm very pleased to welcome Kevin Fitzpatrick. He is the CEO at Cancer Link. Let me spell that for you. C-A-N-C-E-R, capital L. I-N capital Q, Cancer Link. Kevin has very wisely selected a quote from William Gibson. Let me just tell all of you a little bit about Gibson. He was born in 1948. Well, he and I almost share a birthday. I gave away too much information there. He's an American-Canadian speculative fiction novelist. I never heard of that one. And he's called the noir prophet of the cyberpunk subgenre. And uh, his quote for the day is, the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. Kevin Fitzpatrick, how are you? Good morning. It's great to uh, be with you on such an exciting topic. And I'm, I'm delighted that you uh, asked me to participate. We are so pleased. Yeah, so talk to me. William Gibson, are you a fan of Gibson? Do you read him? And by the way, Kevin, one of his other quotes, I must inject, interject this, the net is a waste of time, and that's exactly what's right about it. Let's just leave that one alone. But he did have a sense of humor. So the future is here, and it's not evenly distributed. Does that apply to individualizing cancer therapies? Kevin? 
it could not apply more to mm-hmm. uh, cancer therapy today. As you stated, it is an incredibly exciting time in oncology. Uh, advances are occur- occurring every day that are uh, reducing the, uh, the, the mortality and morbidity from this dread disease. And what we have found in molecular diagnosis is that it is not just one disease, but rather it is a multiplicity of diseases, diseases that are buried deep within our genetic makeup and uh, triggers, environmental triggers, genetic triggers, cause cells to grow in great uh, rapidity and that's the uh, that's the the, the very uh, underpinnings of cancer we have now found multiple uh, genetic and molecular interventions that can address uh, diseases that um, just years ago, uh, just a, a handful of years ago, were outside of uh, our reach and are converting what were dread diagnoses now to chronic conditions. So it's an incredibly exciting time, but not everyone has access to this mm-hmm. information. Not everyone has access to the decision support around this. And so uh, CancerLink was founded to gather data from a great many providers from around the country, around the world, to aggregate that data and to, to democratize access to uh, therapeutic intervention information, genetic information, immunotherapy inf- information, uh, so that uh, insights can be applied more effectively uh, no matter what a person's geography. Thank you very much, Kevin. Uh, just let's expand this for a second before I introduce your co-panelists today. Are we talking global? Is that the worldview you have at Cancer Link? Is it anybody in any country? How do you get on that line? How do you get on that line to say to your healthcare provider, I want you to send my information to Cancer Link so they can put it in their database and share it? Is that something individual patients need to know about? Is that something hospitals will reach out for? Is that something doctors' practices will have to learn about? out through shows like this and and through connections on the internet. How do people find out about this? Sure, it's a great question. You know, uh, CancerLink is a a service of the American Society for Clinical Oncology. It is the world's leading organization for practicing oncologists, over 40,000 practitioners around the world. And so uh, this has been uh, this this promise, this dream of CancerLink, this dream of a rapid learning system for oncology has been under discussion in this community for a number of years. And now partnering with SAP and their global uh, uh, platform, uh, has really brought awareness of this to practitioners around the world. The problem we have is not uh, getting the word out. The problem we have, and it's a great problem to have, is responding to the inbound excitement about this because people are lo- hungry for answers. People know that there are solutions that are now readily available for uh, for a whole new cohorts of patients, and people are hungry for the uh, the, the data uh, the in- clinical insights that can emerge from analyzing large cohorts of patients in a way that had never been possible before. Thank you so much, Kevin. Great start to our conversation today, and I appreciate all the information. Now let me introduce Stephanie Huber. She's a senior consultant for business intelligence at Deloitte Consulting, and a shout-out to all of your colleagues at Deloitte, especially the wonderful Carla Neal, who is so – she takes such good care of us here at Game Changers Radio. Always make sure that we get wonderful speakers like Stephanie Huber. Stephanie has sent me a quote that is widely attributed to Sir Isaac Newton. Actually, the quote is, 
dating back to February 15, 1676, if you can believe that. Newton, of course, was an English physicist and mathematician, widely recognized as one of the most influential scientists of all time and a key figure in scientific revolution. But if you look back a little farther, the quote was attributed earlier, uh, way earlier, to Bernard of Chartres by John of Salisbury. I know, I know. And here is the, uh, I'll read the quote and then I'll read the variation. If I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. That's the one from Newton. And the version from Bernard of Chartres is, we the moderns are like dwarves perched on the shoulders of giants, the ancients, and thus we are able to see more and farther than the latter. Stephanie Huber, thanks for indulging my, you know, I love to look these things up and find the variations. How are you, Stephanie? I'm doing great. Good morning, Bonnie. Thank you for having me today. Well, we are so pleased to have you here. And Stephanie, how did you come to pick this Sir Isaac Newton quote? We'll go with his version because it's a little shorter to apply for our topic today. Um, I actually um, heard this quote when I was in middle school. Um, I went to Georgia Tech for um, a chemical engineering kind of seminar to kind of introduce women into the field of chemical engineering, and um, that was one of the quotes that they um, mentioned while we were at, at Georgia Tech, and so that kind of always resonated with me. But yeah, it's a, it's a great quote. It is. And talk to me in the context of, of what we've already heard from Kevin Fitzpatrick at Cancer Link and our topic about the Human Genome Project and advances with technology, technology partnering with science in such an important area of progress that we have not been able to make until now. And hopefully this will be the right answer, the right solutions and the right identifications of the problem. So, Stephanie, how does this apply from your standpoint? You are a technologist. What do you see? Right. So um, cloud computing is not only um, important to helping find a cure for cancer, but it's almost critical with just the volume of the data and not only just the volume, but the amount of processing that is required to find um, traits and to um, identify um, mutations and the kind of therapies that treat those mutations properly. Um, Big data is, is critical for that. Okay. Thank you, Stephanie. I know we're going to hear a lot more from you later in the show. And again, thank you for joining us. And rounding out our panel today is Greg McStravick. Let me spell that in case you want to look him up. M-C-S-T-R-A-V-I-C-K. He's the GM and global head of SAP Database and Technology for one of SAP's core innovation areas. And we're always innovating, so that's very important. And Greg has sent me a wonderful quote. The quotes today were amazing. From John Maynard Keynes. Keynes lived from 1883 to 19. 46. His, his subtitle is the first Baron Keynes, and he had all kinds of letters after his name. Keynes is an English economist whose ideas fundamentally changed the theory and practice of modern macroeconomics and the economic policies of governments. And maybe we'll get the word government into our conversation. Here's the quote. The difficulty lies not so much in developing new ideas as in escaping from old ones. Greg, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm doing terrific, Bonnie. Thank you very much. We're delighted to have you. Talk to me. Are you a big fan of John Maynard Keynes? And if not, how'd you find the quote? I guess I'm biased towards uh, English English um, historians in general because my other favorite is Winston Churchill, but I couldn't find a quote applicable for him. Okay. Um, you know, Keynes is just, uh, I was introduced to Keynes, obviously, at university in economics, um, 
thought he was just a brilliant, um, edgy person. And this quote for me really, really points to what we're trying to do, not just from a technology standpoint, but from an industry standpoint, and in this case, medicine. We're trying to help. We're trying to help practitioners um, think about different ways to tackle problems than the ways they do them today. And I, I, I love Kevin's comments. There's a very particular reason we're working in oncology first. Um, and, and Bonnie, you asked the question, how do you get the message out there? This, mm-hmm. this is actually contained in this quote. It is so difficult to have people who have done things a certain way change their perspective, change their point of view, and invite um, new ways of doing things into their practice. Oncologists by nature, by the nature of this terrible disease, are probably more exploratory than any other doctor I've come across. And so the technology and the opportunities that we're talking about um, and we'll talk about today, while they apply to oncology, I will argue apply to other disciplines within medicine as well. We just believe fundamentally, uh, certainly with our partnership with ASCO, that um, we will be very, very effective in getting the word out and helping people develop new ideas and escape the old ones by leading with the, the, the oncology practitioners. Uh, so that's why this quote for me kind of sums up the, the entire topic for, for not only SAP but ASCO and, quite frankly, medicine in general. Thank you. I, I like the optimism I hear in your voice and in your words, Greg. I like the idea that it's going to get better. We will. God, this topic is almost bringing me to tears. Um, it, it hit my family uh, about uh, six months ago. We lost my sister to cancer. And uh, never, never, you never think, oh, you read the numbers, right, Greg? But you never think it will hit home. Never, it's never going to come that close. And it the, sad did. Part and is, the sad part is, Bonnie, it's probably touching everyone on this call in one way, in less than yeah. six degrees of separation. So something has to change. Yeah, something does. A lot has to change. By the way, let me define for our audience our topic. What we're calling us today is medicine by the slice, and that has so many implications. Take whatever one works for you. Curing cancer one patient at a time. And the implications of that are not that it's slow. The implications are that it's better, that everybody is different. Everybody's genome and DNA structure is different, billions and billions. And we need to approach this on what works for each individualized patient. No more one size fits all because it's not fitting. We have a great panel today and now we want to get to know them a little bit more personally. So I'm going to circle back to the the other side of the table. I won't say the head of the table. You're all at the head of the table. Kevin Fitzpatrick, CEO at CancerLink. Kevin, where are you calling from? What time of the day or whatever is it? And tell us about your favorite drink, what you're drinking right this second or what you're planning to drink after we're off the air. Kevin? Well, good morning again. It's uh, 10 a.m. here on the East Coast. I'm in our nation's capital, and uh, I'm drinking double espressos because I'm coming off of three days of board meetings, and you know how that can be. So I'm, I'm in the recovery phase and needing all the, uh, the caffeinated support that I can get. Well, it sounds like you're getting it. Is there a special brand to what you're drinking, or is it just whatever's in the machine? You know, I've got a, a, a new Nespresso machine that I'm having a lot of fun with. It's driving my wife crazy, but I'm enjoying it. <laughs> That's what we wanted to know. Okay, a new fan to Nespresso. Good shout-out. Thank you. Stephanie Huber, where are you calling from, and what are you drinking? I am calling from Fort Worth, Texas. It's 9.16 a.m. here, and I've got um, 
uh, a chai latte with two shots of espresso. And it's from, I'm actually at the Hilton in downtown Fort Worth, so it's from the Starbucks in the hotel. How nice. A lot of good information there. And uh, how, how do you know whether to put one shot or two shots of espresso in there? Does it change the flavor? Does it change the power that it gives you? What's, what is what did two do that one doesn't, Stephanie? Kind of like Kevin, I kind of need that um, that extra espresso. We are closing up our project. Our um, our project ends in a couple weeks, so we're kind of wrapping everything up. A lot of long days and a long hours. So, yeah, just uh, the two shots not necessary for the flavor, but for that extra caffeine. There you go. We we call uh, non-decaffeinated coffee high test where I come from. <laughs> that's that's what Kevin may remember. I don't know. I don't think Stephanie does. Greg, maybe uh, when you go to the gas pump to fill up your car, you'd say, give me high test. That's all you got. Give me the best. Give me the highest octane. So that's high octane coffee. Thank you, Stephanie. Greg McStravick, where are you? Calling Greg McStravick. And what are you drinking? I am in a town called Newtown Square, Pennsylvania, which is uh-huh. where our North American headquarters are for our company. So that's in uh, the Eastern Time Zone. And I, I feel guilty. I am drinking a healthy shake um, that I got from Whole Foods in Kimberton this morning. And it's a mix of kale and spinach and carrots and beets and apples. Um, and I don't know, maybe because I read about, a lot about the, uh, the uh, health illnesses in the world, I try, to, uh, I try to manage what I put into the body as much as I can. So uh, no caffeine. My team would probably tell me I don't need it anyway. Um, (laughs) So that's what I'm drinking, and I like to try to do at least one a day. I think that's admirable. Uh, What flavor is dominating in that drink, Greg? Uh, Well, carrots and beets because they're sweeter. Okay. And they hide the bitterness of some of the greens. I was going to say, it sounds healthy. You don't need to feel guilty about that. I think the rest of us do. <laughs> I have a feeling. Uh, Greg, you and I have something in common. Uh, actually, they don't allow me to have caffeinated beverages when I'm doing live radio for SAP. And that's four days a week, five shows a week. It'll probably be six shows a week by the time 2016 rolls around. So I'm drinking a glass of just cool, clear, uh, filtered water. And I usually have a green straw because green meaning economics and money and finance and all that, but I've been using a yellow straw this week because it's not very sunny here in New York, and I'm hoping before this deluge of rain we're expecting, at least that's what the weather people have been threatening us with for two days now, uh, I'm hoping that we'll get a little sunshine. So the yellow straw is optimism for sunshine. Thank you very much. Guess what? Our topic today, again, is medicine by the slice, curing cancer one patient at a time. I have an extraordinarily smart and dedicated team today on our panel. We have Kevin Fitzpatrick, CEO at CancerLink. We have Stephanie Huber, Senior Consultant for Business Intelligence at Deloitte Consulting, and Greg McStravick, General Manager and Global Head of SAP Database and Technology. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, and I plan to be after the break. You don't want to miss this. Important information, even if you're that one in the few who cancer hasn't touched personally, or somebody you know, somebody you love, somebody around the corner, down the block, or at the place where you get your coffee, you want to hear this. This is going to be life-changing and life-saving information, so stick around. Don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. Justin, out. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
The pace of innovation is moving faster than ever, and the future of business will be defined by how quickly business leaders adapt to accelerated ongoing change. Insights from totally new sources of data, sensors that capture and share what is happening in your business environment, and the tools to understand it and act on it. These are shaping the definition of future success. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how business leaders can shape the future of change. Internet of Things with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Internet of Things with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Internet of Things with Game Changers. We're back with a very heavy-duty topic today, something that affects everyone. Medicine by the slice, curing patient, curing cancer one patient at a time, curing cancer patients one at a time, and hopefully big numbers for the masses eventually. Speaking with Kevin Fitzpatrick, Stephanie Huber, and Greg McStravick, we're ready for our roundtable in earnest here, and Kevin Fitzpatrick is going to kick this off. Kevin, I'm looking at the notes you sent me before the show, and here's a great statement I think will serve us well to start the conversation conversation. You say, the gold standard for clinical evidence is the randomized control clinical trial, and you add, yet only 3% of patients are enrolled in these trials, and the sad part is, the the very sad part is the clinical experience of the other 97% of patients is lost to science and to the community. These are difficult numbers. Kevin, talk to me. Yeah, they are, and uh, it's a problem that uh, that we have to address. Uh, and the randomized control clinical trial, as you know, sponsored by life sciences companies to taste to test new therapeutic options. Uh, they enroll trials with patients who have very precise. Uh, characteristics, inclusion and exclusion criteria. The patients who go into trials are healthier, they're younger, they have fewer comorbidities, and they're also more affluent. So they're, 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 they over-skew to Caucasian populations. They underrepresent uh, Hispanic and black populations. And so there's a lot of problems, despite the fact that great evidence emerges from these trials, there's a lot of problems with them. So what happens to the other 97% of people who either don't qualify for a trial, who are who have these diseases but are older, have comorbidities such as heart disease and diabetes, they are not reflected in this evidence. And so our challenge and the goal of CancerLink is to compile the real-world clinical evidence on all of these patients and to be able to look across lar- large cohorts of patients to understand the, uh, the trajectory of these various cancers uh, in these subpopulations, to look at therapeutic options within these subpopulations, and to look for outcomes within these groups. So there's 1.7 million new diagnoses of cancer every every year just in the United States alone and um, uh, and so uh, large numbers of patients are doing 
much better than they did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, or 30 years ago. The success that uh, the the uh, that um, uh, the cancer-fighting community has had in in the last decades has been staggering. Cancer has now been converted in many cases to a chronic condition, uh, but we are learning every day about uh, the new implications of therapies, uh, new implications of testing, new implications of therapeutic options. I'll, I'll stop there. And uh... Thank you, Kevin. Good start to the conversation. Uh, when we get to our predictions round, the crystal ball at the end of the show, perhaps you can predict some optimistic increases in these numbers going from the 3% of patients enrolled and the skew toward affluent Caucasian patients to something better at some point in the future. I hope you can see that far out to the future, and I hope it's not that far out, actually. Thank you, Kevin. Stephanie Huber, love to have your comments on what Kevin just shared with us, please. Right. So not only is it just 3% of cancer patients, but typically the control trials, it's just randomly assorted groups of people, typically at least, you know, two or more groups, whereas one group tests a treatment and the other group either has some placebo or no treatment, and you kind of track their progress and how they respond and how the disease progresses. So even even the 3% that participate in these randomized controlled trials, um, they're not leveraging kind of the latest and greatest uh, cancer, you know, targeted cancer therapies. So, um, so yeah, there's, we have a long way to go from what we uh, used to use with those clinical trials. Progress is slow, but it's still progress, right? And Greg McStravick, mm-hmm. let's get you in on this. What do you observe? Well, I think this all comes down to matching, right? And if you think about the economics of the business we're talking about, the life sciences companies are in the business of getting their trial drugs to market. And so there's a built-in incentive for them to smart target their clinical trials. The sad part is over 85% of patients are in remote locations, don't, don't even have the chance normally to participate in these trials. Um, and why? And it's because of the lack of information about those patients and the trial matching to those patients. We call it the democratization of the information. We've got mm-hmm. to get into a repository that would allow um, these pharma companies to, um, for the right reasons now, open up their trial base of target patients. And you, as, as Kevin said, you've got to look across a much larger cohort and not have the economic incentive to keep that cohort small so that you can get your trial just to market faster. And so the, 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 the market's going to have to be willing to, and it will, shift towards a democratization of the information so that the right people are doing the smart targeting of the trials across a larger cohort of candidates. Greg, you mentioned the nasty word economics. The money enters the picture. Uh, the incentive for pharmas yep. and, and healthcare companies to reach out and go that extra mile, literally, figuratively, virtually, to bring in other populations. Is there any ethical issue here as far as a company saying, well, you know, we've got to make that bottom line happen. Our investors want to know we have a healthy margin this year uh, versus, damn, we have to increase the breadth and extent of the network casting. Any thoughts on that? I'm not asking you for a political yeah. statement, clearly, but no. anything uh, about how, how do we tie the good, the good news yeah. with the good news? 
So this may be a little philosophical, but I believe mm-hmm. fundamentally in efficient market theory. If your strategy is what you just described with not based on ethics, you're not going to be around very long. Is it in the system today? Uh, unfortunately, yes. Is it uh, rampant? I don't believe so. I think my colleagues would agree with that. I think the real question is how do we make the economics work? And um, it's pretty well known that the inefficiencies of finding trial patients that actually match and going through the trial process is incredibly expensive and the waste is there. So the vision is that by doing smart target trials with a larger cohort, but having the right targets based on the data, based on all the omics data available and the DNA genomic data available, that the economics will actually work in favor of the life sciences companies, not against them in the future, because they'll be able to target quickly and not have the inefficiency in the process that exists today. Well, I like that optimism a lot, and I think everybody else does. Kevin Fitzpatrick, let me circle back to you. A lot of good information from your co-panelists today. What do you think? Any any other comments on the topic you started for us? Any other numbers oh, you want to share? Yeah, I, I just agree with what uh, with my co-panelists have, have mentioned. It's in everyone's best interest. It's in industry's best interest. It's in the payer's best interest. It's certainly in the patient and family's best interest to have data that has historically been locked away in paper files in individual servers of an EMR system to be shared widely across in, in an appropriate way, in an anonymized, aggregated fashion so that researchers can, can examine this data and, uh, and allow for new in- inferences to be made. I'll, I'll give you one, one mm-hmm. amazing example. And as we know, we're in this fortunate position now where cancer patients are living longer. And, and we don't really know what happens long-term to these patients because we're seeing the first generations of survivors from some of these diseases. And that's a good thing. But what we're now finding are signals around lingering off-target effects of chemotherapy or radiation therapy. They may have, have, have uh, been subjected to a decade, two decades earlier. And one of the fastest growing areas of inquiry is cardio-oncology. What we're finding is that there are off-target effects on the heart and great vessels from some of these chemotherapies, from some of this radiation therapy, that uh, whose manifestations occur years later, right? And so we, we know that that occurs now, and, and, and measures are being taken now to moderate dosing to try to reduce those off-target effects. But what other organ systems are being affected in, in a similar way? It's, again, only through, uh, through big data and the ability to look at large cohorts of patients over time that these signals will begin to emerge. Thank you. Very interesting information. I wish this show was two or three hours long because there's so much to cover, but at least we're making an effort to start and get this out to our listening public. By the way, for our panelists, we do have a global audience all over the world and all over North America, and I know everybody's going to appreciate the expertise and the insights you're all sharing, so thank you again. Let me turn to Stephanie Huber at Deloitte. I'm looking at the notes you sent me, Stephanie, and let's let's look at data uh, let's, let's look at some of the insights you're sharing. Let me just read this. As opposed to generating hypotheses, the availability of big data sets allows the data to speak to the researcher and meaningful things can pop out that were not expected. And then you talk about data about cancer mutations 
and the medical responses they require will be turned into actionable information at the point of care. And then you add one more concept that I'd like you to get into, enabling better care through mobile devices in hospitals and clinics and in patients' homes or wherever they are. Stephanie, any or all of the above, why don't you uh, dive in here? You can talk about the big data sets or mobile devices, pulling that data from one place and giving it to people who need it. Talk to me. Yeah. So luckily there are some companies out there that are in existence that are currently leveraging some of the big data platforms and taking advantage of um, the, comp- the computation. They don't have to download it and kind of spend hours and hours um, kind of finding um, relationships. There's actually a company called MetaSapiens, so M-E-D-I. S-A-P-I-E-N-S, Metasapiens. It's actually a Finnish company, and it hosts the world's largest database of unified gene expressions, and it provides a software for oncologists to reference 19,000 or so genes across 20,000 patients, typically in the European area, but it's great because it allows doctors to access this information, and they can see protocols about specific cancer medicines and treatments. And I know that there's actually a U.S. company that's currently, so this is, this is now, you know, this isn't in the future pie in the sky. This is happening now. There's a, a U.S. company, Nantworks, N-A-N-T, Works, W-O-R-K-S. Um, and it's actually working with Verizon. Um, and they're developing a, what they're calling a cancer knowledge action network. And it actually uses a cloud database technology for kind of the same thing, um, providing doctors access to um, specific protocols about medicines and treatments. So um, luckily, you know, this cloud computing has helped make all of this even feasible. And so before it was, you know, it was extremely expensive, but um, the cost of um, kind of these, this hardware and software, which is now virtualized, has gone, it's one-fifth today than it was four years ago. So it's feasible for um, these smaller labs or um, primary care um, oncologists and hospitals have access to this type of data. And it's not Thank very, you. and there's all different types of cloud computing service models. So, um, so it's, it can be accessible. So, for instance, you can do software as a service, which um, anybody who's worked with SAP, SAP has a lot of different software as a service solutions. But basically, um, you can have a service provider provide the software applications hosted and managed by the service provider, and the researcher can just access this information. No need to install anything, download data locally. It can all be accessed um, through a service provider. Another is platform as a service. So this is, I guess, for more of the advanced researchers. They can, um, so it's basically, it's a custom software application where they can um, do their own custom development with programming languages or software libraries or tools hosted and managed by the service provider. And then um, this one, I have. there's not a lot of customers that I'm aware of or, or medical institutions that are using it, but it is available out there. Um, infrastructure as a service, the other kind of service model for cloud computing, where it's basically the service provider provides storage and um, computing and networking resources and the researcher um, can deploy their operating systems, their applications, their development toolkits. So all of this is, is made analyzing these huge sets of data even feasible because um, it's not just simply storing the data. It's mm-hmm. the ability to compare and analyze that data and then constantly reassess it because as we're finding new and new information, we need to reassess um, what we currently have. 
Thank you, Stephanie. That was certainly a lesson packed into just a few minutes. I'm, I'm very intrigued given the number that uh, Kevin just shared with us a few minutes ago that only 3% of patients are involved in clinical trials. Can you imagine, can we imagine how big the big data sets will actually be if that number zooms to 5% or 10% or, my goodness, 20% or nears, oh, or jumps over the 50% mark? How big, big, big the volume and the velocity and how these systems are going to have to allow researchers to do their comparisons to turn data into information. It's exciting. It's scary. I'm optimistic. Let's get Greg McStravick in here on this part of the conversation. Greg, what do you see about what Stephanie just shared? Yes, sorry. I was just thinking of my thoughts. You know, I think Stephanie brings up a great point, which is there are a lot of um, market forces um, active at the same time, which is why you should be optimistic about the future of, of medicine. I think, um, you know, you, you heard from the tech standpoint, the advances in the cloud compute platforms, the ability to prosecute um, volumes and volumes of data um, in a different way today than you were able to do, quite frankly, five years ago. Um, you, 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 so those are a lot of the benefits. In fact, um, I, I was talking to a venture capitalist, and he said, look, we consider healthcare the next and last great frontier. Um, that's both a, um, uh, you know, I consider it both an opportunity and a concern, meaning that there's a ton of opportunity to advance healthcare leveraging technology, which also tells you that healthcare is obviously one of the last industries to adopt, which is, again, why I chose my quote at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think when you look at this, there's also the challenges, though, like privacy issues. Um, Kevin talked about the anonymization of the data. Um, so there will be the great news in all of this, Bonnie, at the end of the day is that we're talking about it and that the market is talking about it and that there is a lot of energy and momentum behind the intersection of healthcare and technology. And, um, you know, there will be a lot of failures on the trail to success here. And there have been in the past and there will be in the future. But I am, and I think my colleagues would agree, um, incredibly optimistic about the rapid intersection of this technology and health in general and the potential it, it, it presents, not just for oncology and cancer, but, um, but a health in general. And uh, I, I just would tell you that I still think we're on the edge and that um, we're continuing to do things like these experimental companies. Um, but uh, I, I just, I, it's such a cool topic because this intersection wasn't available to, to us in this industry five years ago. Mm-hmm. So great progress is being made. Kevin Fitzpatrick, I want to bring you into this, but I'd also ask you to include in your remarks, Kevin, who is the CEO at CancerLink. Uh, Kevin, it takes so much optimism. I, I keep peppering the conversation with that. Uh, Greg McStravick just mentioned it. We have had so many fits and starts, if I can use that term, for cancer therapies that are not solving the problem, the mortality rate, oh my goodness. And the question is, uh, with all of this exciting news on the technology side that Stephanie walked us through a moment ago, is this empowering, exciting, energizing people in the research area, people you work with who are gathering this data and trying to do it better? Are they saying, oh God, another year, we haven't saved too many more patients. So how do we balance all this great news with, with the reality part that we still have cancer? Kevin? 
So I would I would suggest that uh, this is a time of tremendous optimism. And if you look at uh, one crude metric, and that is the number of attendees who who come to uh, Chicago every year for the uh, American Society of Clinical Oncology annual meeting, the largest uh, meeting of its type in the world, it, it's, uh, it is now 40,000 people coming in, taking over Chicago. Uh, every year, it is growing five, six, seven percent in terms of attendees and new companies coming in and new players uh, coming into the oncology market space because the the pipeline of new therapies is so rich and so vast and growing so rapidly. And we're also in an era now, uh, and, and it, it's almost hard to imagine, but um, you know, can you think back a few years, would you ever think that uh, someone from an executive from SAP, an executive from Deloitte, an executive from oncology would be united around a common cause in reducing mortality and morbidity. And, you know, not, not too many years ago, we would have all been operating in our own silo, but now because of access to data, new technologies, new channels of information and access to information, we can take lessons from across different industries, different ways of viewing big data to draw insights into medicine uh, that our colleagues, perhaps in manufacturing, telecommunications, uh, have already learned. And, uh, and using big data and using uh, computational tools that were never before available to medicine, I think really drive uh, a new era of uh, exciting discovery. So, um, uh, while it is still a problem, a terrible problem uh, for uh, for uh, for many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of individuals, uh, we are absolutely making great strides, and it's a time of tremendous optimism. I like that. I, I like that a lot. Thank you very much, Stephanie. I'm going to let you wrap up on this part of our conversation. Anything you'd like to add to what Greg and Kevin commented on your topic? Absolutely. So before, um, when there were new research advancements, it was always presented through, say, a quarterly update. And it would have, you know, your molecular profile data selection or your validity analysis or, you know, your, your data unification through the publication of journals. Well, through the Internet of Things and actually having um, this data where you can um, basically put in any kind of vitals or any type of information into a mobile device that's then um, sent to a cloud, which can be processed and analyzed, and then you can ha- it will have more of a call to action so you can better take care of your patients. That's, that's what the future is. So it's no longer waiting a quarter to say, okay, you know, this is what we found, you know, try this out on your patients, and then just kind of sitting and waiting. So it's... Um, it's definitely more of a proactive approach. So um, I, I would definitely say there's a lot of reason to be optimistic. Thank you very much. I think we've agreed on that, and I appreciate it. Greg McStravick, I'm looking at your notes. And let's do a look back in history. I don't think we've done a, a deep dive. And how do we get to today from where we came from. Let me just read an alternate quote you sent me, Greg. You quoted Hippocrates of Kos, a Greek physician of the age of Pericles, considered one of the most outstanding figures in the history of medicine. And the quote is, it is far more important to know what person the disease has than what disease the person has. I find that very interesting. I'm not sure if it's a circular tautology or not. Uh, Talk to me a little bit about going back centuries ago to the age of Hippocrates and 
understanding disease and understanding the deep molecular origins of disease. Do you want to give us a little history lesson, Greg? Well, I don't know that I can do justice to the history lesson, but obviously, you know, it's considered with Hippocrates as a father of medicine that we began the process of understanding the anatomy, toxicology, histology, those types of ologies. But, you know, we opened this call with your, your um, explanation of the, de- the sequencing of the human genome. And I had the pleasure of speaking to the person who um, first sequenced his own uh, DNA, his own genome. And it took over a million dollars in over a year. Mm-hmm. And to say that today we can do that in a day or so and at a cost of about $1,000 just helps you quickly rally around the concept of this intersection of technology and medicine and why that data that heretofore was unavailable is becoming available and is driving tremendous advances in, um, in, in not just the treatment of the issue uh, the, of the disease, but also why. And that's back to that quote. It's, it's a lot less about who the disease is hit and why the disease has hit that person. What is it about that person? And that's actually, when you really think about it, um, the definition of people use the terms personalized medicine or precision medicine. Mm-hmm. It's getting it down to that molecular level and understanding the why of that person. And then over time, aggregating like persons so that we can have a really good, rich database of experiences and learn from those experiences as the medicine advances. And I shared with you that it's not just oncology, but oncology is where we've started. My belief, and I know I think you might ask me this at the end, so I may be um, uh, getting ahead of you here. But I That's believe okay. that we will move from precision medicine to preventative medicine where they're going to tell me from infancy things I'm supposed to do in my life based on my history, based on my sequence, so that I can prevent things that are more likely to hit me than, than maybe somebody else with a different sequence and a different ology behind them. So it really started, you know, thousands of years ago. But I will tell you, and I think most people will tell you, that the sequencing of the human genome was probably the most um, fundamental advance in healthcare that we've had in the history of healthcare, and it's opened up a whole new specter of possibilities. Thank you, Greg. And before I go back to Kevin and Stephanie on what you've just shared with us, I'd like to bring in one comment from your notes that I think is so important. It's it's uh, maybe life-changing. You say... Patient engagement is the blockbuster drug of the 21st century. That's nothing if it's not provocative. So I want to make sure we get this into the conversation before we move to our predictions in just about five minutes. Talk to me a little bit about that, Greg. Why? Who says this? Where does this come from? Well, 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 just think about it, right? You you go to your doctor even today, and you are an information download to the doctor. And hopefully today they're actually capturing that in their EMR system on their tablet, which, by the way, we've had to, through law, get them there. Um, And and I say that because it's an information download, and then the doctor, based on their own personal experiences – like similar patients, come up with protocols and recommendations for you. And you leave the doctor's office, and you are at the doctor's mercy. 
and that doctor's mm-hmm. experiences. In fact, many know this, our CEO just went through a tough medical experience. Yes. The way the doctors exchanged information on his cases was through texting. Mm-hmm. Texting. Wow. Wow. What has to happen is that the patient owns their own history. The patient manages their own health and doesn't outsource the outcome to a doctor when they're ill. And that's the vision for preventative care, where the the management of outcomes is based on the patient being very, very active in knowing who they are, how they need to manage themselves based on their molecular structure, and sharing with the doctor the things that they're doing. Quite frankly, eventually, most of that they'll share electronically through the Fitbits and the, and the phones and, the, and, the, and who knows what other devices that are connected to them electronically. But that will all go into the electronic data management of that patient that the patient will own because it's their data. Interesting. I, just quickly, Greg, HIPAA. Privacy, protection, you talk about texting, it sounds wonderful. What about people who are so fearful that the information will get copied and pasted and moved around and, and tweeted and oh my goodness, what about that? You know, I, and we could go, we could probably have a separate call just on this topic. Um, I'll just keep it at this, right? Which is, again, back to the efficient market theory. If people, and, and it's so sad because, you know, people will, and God bless our friends in Paris, People will complain that technology enabled that. Well, I'll argue that it did. maybe it helped them, but it also helped us prevent a hell of a lot more. And I don't think you're ever going to stop society from advancing. So if you apply that to medicine, I believe that the patient, when they realize the benefits of sharing their information, not only for others to benefit, but them benefiting back by being able to compare like DNA sequence, like ologies, for better outcomes, I believe that we will get to a point where the risks are far outweighed by the rewards, and I also believe that our technologies will allow us to, at some level, anonymize and protect the data. We're already doing it. Um, Will we advance it? Yes. Will it ever be perfect? No, because there are people, unfortunately, in the world who want to take advantage of it, and they will try to get around it, just like they do in other industries. But I don't believe that that will be the barrier to allowing us to get to where we're going to go. It it will not stop us. Thank you very much. Let's circle back very quickly to Kevin Fitzpatrick. We're just about at our crystal ball predictions. But I'd love for you to just make a one-minute comment on what Greg just shared. Kevin? Yeah, I think uh, Greg made a, uh, a, a number of important points here. Um, you know, the um, uh, patient privacy is in- indeed uh, absolutely essential, and the voice of the patient, the voice of the family, shared decision-making with the, uh, the medical team is absolutely critical to, our, um, to, to enhancing outcomes uh, going forward. Uh, and that's one of the, the, the data assets that we don't have is the patient voice in combination with the disease and the therapies and the genomics. And it's one of the goals of CancerLink is to also include the unfiltered voice of the family uh, and the patient uh, so that we can understand what that therapeutic journey was like. And, uh, and help others in making choices about, about their life and about um, uh, the medical uh, decisions that are right for them. 
Thank you very much. You know what? I'm going to stick with you because we have just five minutes, less than five minutes till the end of the show, and I do wish we had more time. So let's go quickly into the crystal ball predictions round. I think we've been predicting a lot during the show, but let's formalize it now. I'm going to give you each 60 seconds for your top of mind predictions on the topic of medicine by the slice, curing cancer one patient at a time. Kevin Fitzpatrick at Cancer Link. Tell me how far in the future you like to predict. One minute. Predictions, go. Well, I'm going to go with 2020. And in 2020, real-world clinical data will do for cancer what the microscope did for infectious diseases, meaning that it will be the essential lens through which each provider views that patient and their condition and makes therapeutic decisions uh, with greater precision uh, and with greater accuracy. Thank you very much. I like that optimism. Yes, I had that as your personal quote, and I'm going to tweet that. Thank you so much, Kevin Fitzpatrick. Stephanie Huber, you're up. 60 seconds. Predictions, how far in the future would you and Deloitte like to take a look? Go ahead, Stephanie. Well, um, by 2024, there's, um, and even I can state something earlier than that, but by 2024, there are predictions to have 27 billion devices connected through um, an Internet of Things type network. And um, mostly that's been taken advantage of by, say, manufacturing customers, you know, for predictive maintenance on uh, expensive assets and for, you know, connected logistics and, um, you know, inventory management. But as this is getting um, exposed and taken advantage of by the healthcare industry, um, there are um, predictions that by 2018, all of this or much of this, 40% of the Internet of Things created data will be stored, processed, and analyzed at the edge of the network. So by that, in hospitals, in clinics, in homes, wherever that um, patient um, service provider interaction occurs. So within very short time, we should be able to start seeing some of this in practice. Thank you very, very much. And I have, goodness, they were quick. Greg McStravick, I'm going to actually give you 90 seconds for your prediction. So take your time. (laughs) Go ahead, Greg. Um, thank you. Um, I'd like to actually make two, if it's okay. One that's very sure. time-bound and the other one that's a little bit more uh, esoteric. So I believe that in three years, by the year 2019 beginning, that we will have it developed in at least one country, based on privacy laws to start, a oncology network where um, the, the network participants, insurance companies, pharma companies, providers, um, patients, are all through this democratization of data um, connected in the cloud, sharing uh, their oncology-specific information for, um, for their different use cases. And the, sh- and the information flow among them is free. And I believe that will happen in three years, and I believe it will happen at a country level first. Uh, my second prediction is, and probably a lot more the way Stephanie described it, that we will expand this network of a concept, first of all, in oncology to other countries to share that information, and then this network will go well beyond oncology. And there will probably be other networks developed at the same time in other disciplines like cardiology, et cetera. Um, but as you begin to bring in through the Internet of Things all of these disparate sources of data, it will just amplify the network effect. And I believe we will get to a world of cloud-based, patient-directed health management. 
Thank you. Very eloquent, very well done, and you gave me just enough time to close the show. I can only say two words to my wonderful panelists. Thank you. I can add a million times, and I can add your optimism, your engagement is appreciated, and all of the good forward-looking thoughts you've shared will help a lot of people. Thank you. I'm sorry. Okay, here I am. I'm going to give you my call to action. This was a very meaningful show for so many of us, and the good news is that there is good news. Thank you so much to Ira Burke at SAP for putting together this topic and inviting these three extraordinary thought leaders, and you certainly are. Thank you to Nikki Kraken for at SAP for tweeting, and we had tweeters. My goodness, Greg McStravick was up tweeting at around 1 o'clock in the morning, and I was retweeting at 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we have gotten quite a buzz about this, and I hope the buzz will continue. So I'm just simply going to say here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today in a meaningful way. Bonnie D. Graham signing off for another edition of... SAP Game Changers Radio. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Internet of Things with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again on Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Hi, I'm Rick Osick with Famous Footwear. Did you know that premature birth is the number one killer of babies? 